You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. But right now, here he is back from fun and frolic or whatever the heck he was doing. Good morning, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing today? What were you doing anyway? Oh, just visiting uh, down to St. George. Uh, I see. Of course, somebody had to golf, and I just sacrificed myself. They had an open place in the little cart. <laughs> they did, yeah. and I did go. So you drove 500 miles to take and fill that open space. I did. You know, it was a sacrifice, but hey, you know, you do what you got to do in this well, life. The people that own the golf course said it was a sacrifice, too. <laughs> <laughs> they, had, they had to call Kimberly Nursery. <laughs> they come and replace the grass. Oh, dear. What do we got today? Well... The big thing in the news today is a movie that has received 12 Academy Award what, nominations. nominations right, uh, right. The Revenant, which right. is the story of Hugh Glass and Jim Bridger somewhat. And uh, for our listeners that want to hear the story of Hugh Glass, go back on my podcast to DrHistory.com, April 29th of 2014. And that's where I go through and tell the story of Hugh Glass, and then you can compare with the book or the movie or both. And I think what I told in the, on that podcast was pretty close to accurate of what really happened. So well, Now, wait a minute. Let's be fair to this whole situation and be fair to history also. That when it comes to historical facts, I don't care if you're going to the Mountain Man era, I don't care if you're going to Billy the Kid, I don't care if you're going to General George Armstrong Custer. There is a tough, tough uh, hill to climb in finding out all the facts as perfectly as you can. That's right. And uh, to their credit, I guess they did the best they could with the movie. Yeah. And uh, Well, it's Hollywood. It is. And it was Hollywoodized yeah. somewhat. So we're going to go about, uh, let's see, Jim Bridger now is about 52 years old. During this time period? Well, the story I'm going to tell today. I see. Okay. So he was only about 20 or so when the Hugh Glass event occurred. So uh, anyway, so it's now almost 40 years since Jim Bridger went up the Missouri under Ashley and Henry. And when a stranger asked him how long he'd been on the frontier, it was his habit to reply solemnly, seriously. He says, you see that hill? When I first saw the mountains, that was only a hole in the ground. <laughs> so, there was a touch of exaggeration. He, he did. And we'll get into that a little okay. more here. But, you know, Kit Carson, uh, owing to the publicity given his exploits in the uh, Fremont expeditions, had long been rated by the public as the greatest scout on the plains. But by 1860, there were other officers and uh, other men of good standing who, uh, you know, they knew Bridger and they see, uh, saw how good he was and that he was coming into his own uh, learning and uh, by many he was given the rating of being the best guide and interpreter in the Indian country. This was Bridger? Yeah. Oh. Now, Kit Carson had a well-deserved reputation and we don't want to take away from that, but the two scouts were individuals each with their own peculiar attitudes and attributes. Good and, word, peculiar. Yeah, peculiar. Yeah. Now, Bridger's qualifications were many, really. His motto was, when in Indian country, do as the Indians do and do it better if you want to survive. Mm. He prided himself that he could outdo them at anything. 
He had lived with the Indians and under the same conditions for so long that he thought and acted very often in the same manner. So what are you saying, that uh, when it came to a tomahawk throw or shooting the bow and arrow, whatever? I, I would imagine all that. But his mind and habits were geared. How about running? <laughs> running. <laughs> I don't know how fast he could run, but uh, he probably did. But anyway, he had a marked uh, language gift, and he wandered over the West. And as he did so, he picked up Spanish and frontier French, besides nearly a dozen Indian languages, including oh, the Snake, the Bannock, the Crow, the flat, Flathead, the Nez Pierce, the Ute, and the Ponderay, with a, with a few others in mixed there. Now, that would make him a huge asset to any uh, uh, guiding that he did. Yeah, all so, you and I could ever say is how. Yeah. <laughs> so, But anyway, he was so adept at, u- at the use of the sign language also that a lot of times when he would talk, he would be using his hands to gesture uh, as, as well as speaking. Almost like a, somebody that knows sign language nowadays, they, they may speak and use their hands at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah. But he was a great uh, marksman. You do that a lot on this program. You keep <laughs> yeah. waving your arms. You look like you're landing a jet on an aircraft. <laughs> I didn't have to hold this book. I would be. But he was a good shot with a rifle, an expert trapper, none better. Uh, His courage and good judgment were acknowledged by everybody who knew him. Now, he also excelled at trailing. And this is some stuff that's really amazed me about him. Mm -hmm. He could read and recognize sign made by any critter on four legs or on two. He could determine the sex, age, gait, and often the purpose of any animal whose trail he picked up. Are you kidding me? No. He could at once identify the tribe of any Indian whose moccasin tracks crossed his trail and was so familiar with his own horse and those of his companions that he could usually recognize the tracks of his horse in the group. I understand you're pretty good, too. You can realize what a train track is. I do. I know exactly what they look like. (laughs) But he could estimate accurately by the warmth of the ashes of a dead fire, campfire, how long it had been since those who built it had left. How do you suppose you learn all that stuff? You know, again, we're looking at a guy that's 56 years old. Yeah. So, you know. Which is younger 30, than both 40, of us. Yes. 30, 40 years of doing this, living yeah. out there. If a track were in sand, he could tell by the amount of sand that had crumbled into it how long before it had been made. Now, that's amazing to me. Yeah. Now, in grass, he could tell whether or not the tracks had been made before or after dewfall, before or after a shower. Even at night, by dismounting and feeling the ground with his hands, he could usually make out the trail. You're kidding. I, I mean, it's amazing. So why don't we take I have a break to, right here? The, I have to <laughs> use breadcrumbs to find my way out of my office. I know, me too. <laughs> Stand by. Hey, don't forget our dear friends at Minicasha Sales, 1321 East Main Street in Burley. Hello, Zach. How you doing over there and the rest of the crew? They open the doors at 8 in the morning till 4.30 Monday through Friday, and I'll tell you what, they've got all your lumber. Are you planning on building something this spring? You're going to kind of renovate and get something, maybe a new porch, a deck, or whatever. I'll tell you, you better stop over there. And they've got all the windows with the western windows, and of course, you know, they've got the Tartar Farm and Ranch Gates and Panels. Everything, and nice, nice people. Minicasha Sales, 1321 East Main Street in Burley. Number to call, 878-2091, and they bring you the great Pathfinder, Dr. History. All right, continuing with his skills, 
uh, in following the trail, he rode or ran a little to one side of, it, of the trail so uh, as not to obliterate the tracks in case he had to go back and verify his observations. Now, he generally looked several yards ahead rather than straight down, since in that way he could see several tracks instead of just one, which he might miss. So this enabled him to follow at a good rate of speed. If he lost a trail, he had only to circle the last visible track until he picked it up again. But his main resource in trailing was his long experience, his imagination, and his great knowledge of the habits of Indians and animals. Wow. So, um, he, he must have really spent some long days <laughs> out did, there. You know, but this enabled him to guess what they were up to and which way they were likely to go. Whenever he had to uh, peer over a hilltop, he would cover his dark hair with a white cloth so that they wouldn't spot his dark head peeking over the hill. So he knew all the tricks for covering tracks and could unravel the most tangled trail. Really? Now, all, men, all mountain men shared these qualities, but Jim had one qualification which made him superior to most guards in the West. He had an amazing memory. And once he had seen a landmark, he could remember it and describe it accurately years and years later. No kidding. And I, I suppose this helped him from getting lost, which would be a good thing out in the West. But, you know, many travelers uh, hunting or in a hurry or on the marks, they look only forward or to the left and right. But Jim had trained himself to look backward every little while so that he saw the country he was coming from from both sides. And you think about it, if you look back on a tr- where you've come, and you've been in the mountains, oh, yeah. if you look back, uh, it helps you to maybe know where you're at. Or yeah, where you're I've done that many times. Yeah. And I'm not that I'm Jim Bridger, yeah. but so, you know, sometimes you get in areas that you go, I yeah. think I better remember this a so little So he knew the landmarks in front of him and behind him. Yeah. Now, his uh, habit of being cautious became increasingly useful now that he was piloting greenhorns through Indian country, and some thought he was overcautious at times, but the recklessness and the inexperience of his companions required caution to keep the balance even. So, you know, they were kind of knotheads, I guess, but he was the one that was a steady hand, I guess you could say. So they hired him to be a guide. Right. Okay. Military and private. I see. So, So here we are with summer of 61. He acted as guide for an engineer named uh, Captain Berthoud, Berthoud, something like that. I think it's Berthoud from Colorado. They named Berthoud Pass after him. Okay, Berthoud. Okay. He reports that when Bridger was consulted as to facts, he was truth itself. But when he wished to tell stories, he was also pretty skillful. In fact, uh, his own experience and perhaps some knack picked up from his surveyor father often enabled him to correctly estimate uh, for the engineers that he guided. In fact, one time they asked him which of the two passes they were looking at was lower. Well, Jim immediately pointed to one which he looked to the others much higher, and seeing that they doubted him, Jim challenged them. He said, put your clocks on them and see. And In other words, get your barometer out and you'll see that I'm right, yeah. that that pass is lower than this pass. I see. Now, Bertude was in the service of Russland Holiday of the Overland Stage Company, and they were seeking a more direct route from Denver to Salt Lake City. Now, what year was this? So this was 1861. Oh, my. He was, I thought he had passed away by then. He was born in 1804, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he was getting up there. Yeah, yeah. So he's about... Kind of he like you. Mid-50s. Yeah, old guy. <laughs> Young. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, 
uh, Bridger led them through Bertude's Pass to Provo, Utah, right. down the west slope to the White River, the Green River, and up the basin of the Duchesne River. And this was a much shorter route than the old one. And today, the Pikes Peak Ocean to Ocean and Victory Highways follow pretty much the same route. Have you ever been over Bertude Pass? I, I don't I have. think I have. I have. Okay. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So here we are now. It's 1862. Bridger put his, he was married. He put his children in the care of friends in a home uh, that he'd bought in Westport in the spring while resting on his little farm. What state was that? Uh, it's Westport, and I'm thinking it's back east. That's what I was thinking. I thought it was, maybe I'm wrong, but am I, if I say Pennsylvania, does that sound right? It could be, but then yeah. it goes on to say that uh, while he was resting on his farm at Little Santa Fe oh. nearby, so maybe, I that don't was, know. maybe it was New Mexico. Yeah, it might have been. Anyway, he was offered work by the government as a guide to a party of officials on their way to Utah. Well, President Lincoln had named two judges to the Supreme Court of Utah Territory, and Jim was chosen to pilot them through from St. Joseph, Missouri to Salt Lake. Hmm. And he was offered good wages and presented with a brand new muzzle-loading rifle, and at that time, uh, actually was the very best rifle that the military had. What year was that? 1862. Muzzle loader? Yeah. I question that. Well, I thought that too, because I'm thinking, surely they had... They were uh, using cartridges by then. Yeah. So, maybe it was just the best muzzle loader they had. Maybe they gave him an old army reject. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, a member of this party describes Bridger as he was at the time. He said, in person, Bridger was tall and spare, but erect, active, and energetic. His hair was brown and long and covered his head abundantly, even in old age. Boy, we wish that, don't we? His eyes were gray and keen. Uh, his ex- habitual expression was mild, and his manners kind and agreeable. Really? And he he goes, was one of a kind. He was. <laughs> he says he was like most old mountaineers, very generous and hospitable, and was respected and trusted by white men and Indians alike. Mm. Now, he always treated Indians with justice and had their confidence to a high degree. In fact, his wife was an Indian woman of the Shoshone. Tribe. Really? Yeah. So she was probably from Wyoming and in this area? I'm guessing or? it had to be, you know, Idaho Wyoming, somewhere in this area. But anyway, the the gentleman in the party often questioned Jim about his explorations, and he described to them the wonders of Yellowstone Park, but he he was soon uh, made to feel that they didn't really believe him. Uh Uh-oh. So hearing whispers about old Jim Bridger's lies, he got his dander up just a little, a little upset, and decided that if they didn't want the truth, then he would give them some real lies. Well, then wait a minute. He's got to be close to 70 right now. Uh, Yeah. Well, no, he's still in his 50s. This is about 1862. late 50s okay so he decided to to, uh embellish some of the stories 
that they thought were lies. Embellished. So, embellished. So he told these unbelievers of the petrified forests in Yellowstone. Oh, this is going to be good. Of petrified trees growing with petrified birds on them, singing petrified songs. A cussed medicine man of the crows had once thrown a curse on a mountain there. And ever since, you can see grass, sagebrush, prairie hens, elk, bear, and antelope all turned to stone just as they were that minute. Mm -hmm. The mountain streams and the waterfalls and the mist over them were frozen into stone. Even the sun and the moon shone with petrified light. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So, like I say, Jim, uh, he's got another story here that, uh, that he's told around the campfire. He says, one day, Jim said, he sighted a bull elk drew a careful bead on the critter and pulled the trigger. Well, the elk did not even raise his head uh, from the grass to show that it had even heard the rifle. Jim crawled up as near as he dared and fired again. Still, the elk grazed undisturbed. A third and fourth shot did no better. Jim was close now. He grabbed his rifle by the barrel, raised it like a club, and charged the elk. Suddenly, he was brought up short and found he had crashed into a mountain of clear glass. This guy could tell a story. (laughs) Though he, through it, he could still see the elk quietly grazing. Uh Uh-huh. And stranger still, he said, the mountain was not only a pure glass, but was a perfect telescopic lens. And whereas the elk seemed but a few hundred yards off, it was in reality 25 miles away. Really? (laughs) I just thought that was a great story. He could embellish a story. To tell the greenhorns. So anyway, when some engineer wanted to know the elevation above sea level where he stood, Jim advised him to bore down until salt water was reached and then measure the distance. And then on the Great Salt Lake, Jim declared that in the winter of 1830, it snowed for 70 days. Now, this may be a little tall tale, too. Yeah. But he said all the buffalo caught in the storm died, but their bodies were perfectly preserved in the snow. So he says, when spring came, all I had to do was to tumble them into the Salt Lake, and I had pickled buffalo enough for myself and the whole Ute nation for years. You said that was a little embellishment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, quite mm-hmm. a guy. Yeah. Uh, but the trip to Utah was not uneventful. On the last Sunday in June 1862 was a bright and peaceful day. Our men were cleaning up their arms, saddles, and equipment. Quite a number of our best shots had gone off into the hills hunting. There were no thought of Indians, for no Indians had been seen for many days. Well, late in the afternoon, a guy came riding up uh, real fast on his horse. He said, Indians, Indians. So the men uh, reported that uh, that a couple of guys had been killed uh, at a wagon train not okay. too far away. Yeah. So Jim Bridger and 20 men were ordered to proceed at once to where this happened. And uh, Jim Bridger said was to go along. And he said, we learned from the strange man uh, talking about Bridger as we rode along that his wagon train, or no, the other guy that came up, uh, I've really got you confused now, don't I? I, I'm not even (laughs) in the same office with you anymore. Okay. We're headed toward the wagon train that got attacked. We're going to start over. We're going to start over. Okay. And Jim Bridger was with him. I got you. And a guy was telling the story. He said there were 12 or 15 wagons had been straggling along the trail in a single line. And when the rear wagon was far behind and out of sight, a war party of Indians had suddenly swooped down, killed both men, and run off the horses. I got you. All right. Now, he said, I was riding with Bridger and came upon the wagon that had been attacked, uh, and they found the bodies of the two men about 100 yards from the wagon, and they came to the first body of one older gentleman, and Bridger calmly dismounted, knelt on the ground, and closely examined the footprints around the body. Then he pulled three arrows, closely examined them, Arapahoes and Cheyennes, he said. 
And he could tell the tribe by okay. their arrows. All right. So leaving the first body, he went they up to the They bought them at Sportsman's Warehouse <laughs> they did. or something. Yeah. Good, good arrows. Leaving the first body, he went up to the wagon and found pieces of the harness that was cut with knives uh, scattered about. And the Indians had got the harness off the horses by cutting nearly every strap. And at one side lay the body of a young man, firmly clutching in his hand a Colt 45. I see. With four of the chambers empty. I see. So we know that he got off four shots. Yeah. So as soon as Bridger saw the pistol, he walked around the wagon in a circle, carefully examining the grass and the sagebrush. Suddenly he stooped and seized the pieces of sagebrush and broke it off. On it was a speck of blood. Uh-huh. He found this. Really? Widening his search, he soon found more blood and came back saying, well, he said the boy got off some shots and he got somebody or, or more. Uh, with his, what he shot. But anyway, under Bridger's uh, guidance, uh, they hunted for the trail of the Indians. Bridger said that they were about 20 in number and were by this time far gone, safe from capture. Uh, they picked a force of 15 cavalry men to go after them, but uh, it was they could never overtake the Indians, which Bridger had already told them that. So, so that's just a, one of the stories about Jim Bridger. That, you know, do another one next week, Doc, on Jim Bridger. You know, there's one where he got shot in the back with an arrow. Is it a true story? A true story. Yeah. And I'll tell you about the arrow okay. that he carried in the back, in his back. Oh, my. For a number of years. Yeah, Tough I, guy. He was. Uh, yeah. You know, and one thing, if you really go back and listen to the story of April uh, 29th, 2014, one of his greatest regrets was leaving uh, Hugh Glass. Really? I mean, he vowed that never, ever again would he ever leave somebody like he did. And Hugh that Glass. was the Mountain Man, of course, which was the uh, derivation of the Revenant right. that is out now. Yes. Okay, a lot of Hollywood. Yes, so go back okay. and listen to that Okay. One. You did it again. Good job, Doctor. Thank you, Zeb. It's Doctor a fun story. History. Enjoy having you back again this week, and we'll look forward to next week. Are we going to do another story on Jim Bridger? You know, I've got some more that okay. probably would be interesting. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. History. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.